the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and losses may be made. My name is Ben Horsell. I work at 91, and this is Transition Talks. It is a series where we're trying to understand what's happening in the real world when it comes to transition. We're going to talk to people who are on the front lines, discussing this, working on this every day. And today we are joined by Bridget Beals, partner at KPMG, who is also the head of climate risk and strategy. Bridget, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me along. So uh, as you said, I'm head of climate risk and strategy for KPMG. This was uh, something of an invention for us around the time the UK passed its net zero legislation. Uh, We looked around the market and we thought, actually, this isn't just about the energy transition anymore. This is a much bigger transition that touches all sectors of the economy. Uh, We already had a really strong energy practice, uh, but we set up climate risk and strategy as a centre of excellence on climate change to support all sectors of the economy uh, with the big change that's required to help them deliver uh, on net zero across their businesses. Got it. So let's let's dig into that a little bit. So we've got this new legislation in the UK um, with these net zero targets. We've got this happening in all parts of the world to different different levels, different degrees. And you've got all these companies are probably thinking, I need to I need to get moving on understanding how to meet these regulations and how to start putting these plans in place. So then they come to you. So can you just give us an example of like a, a couple of different engagements that might might be requests coming into your office just so we get a feel for for what's happening in the business there? Definitely. So maybe I'll give you two examples, one of um, an an asset manager and and then one of a a publicly listed company. Um, So a couple of years ago, a large kind of global alternative asset manager came to us. They said, look, we've been doing ESG for, for a number of years but it feels like the climate agenda is really picking up pace. Um, our LPs are asking for more action. Um, and, and we'd just like to help your help to understand what's happening across the market, where the pressure points on us are, and what we should actually be doing as, as a result of that. So, so we did exactly that. We helped them benchmark some of their peers across the market. We helped them to unpack some of the emerging regulation around the climate agenda. So uh, things like um, what's happening around the Securities and Exchange Commission's climate rule in the US, um, things like, uh, you know, the, the PS2124 legislation here in the UK, things like that, which would ultimately impact um, on what they were doing and, and how they were doing it from a uh, investment, asset management and, and stewardship perspective. And through that, we were able to help them sort of define an ambition of of where they wanted to position um, around the climate agenda in the market. You know, was it simply complying with those regulations or, or were they actually looking for a position of, of leadership um, amongst peers in terms of how they were approaching that transition, how they were preserving value, etc. And, and from there, what we were able to do is actually start to connect that ambition into their activities on the ground. So looking at you know, what funds are they actually launching? How are they launching funds that are aligned to either an energy transition or a low carbon strategy? Um, how do they define and, and derive impact from some of those investments? Um, how do they disclose to the market about the quantum of capital that they are uh, directing towards transition 
versus uh, other alternative asset classes? Um, and then how do they participate in things like uh, the sustainable finance disclosure regulation coming out of the, the European Union? So, you know, will their funds be Article 8, Article 9? Uh, and how do they actually implement um, those strategies? And then coming down underneath that, you know, we were able to actually connect those fund level strategies into the portfolio um, sort of delivery side. So helping them think through, you know, upon entry, what are the climate related risks and opportunities that I need to be thinking about? Can I integrate, you know, a business model pivot that's aligned to this big change into the ongoing investment thesis? Uh, how do I price decarbonisation into my investment thesis? And you know, is there a way for me to use decarbonisation as a value creation thesis in and of itself? So looking at things like, you know, what the customers are actually asking for um, and, and, you know, do your end customers have scope three targets, in which case you know, there is going to be um, upstream pressure to decarbonise as well. So helping them think through those things uh, at the entry point into the investments and then uh, obviously post-close then starting to help them think through how do we integrate that into 100-day planning? How do we integrate that into ongoing uh, engagement with the portfolio companies? Uh, how do we influence management teams around how to do this? Uh, and crucially, the deal teams as well. Uh, we, we, do, we did have to... Uh, you know, do something of a hearts and minds kind of uh, engagement there as well. Um, and then I guess crucially for, for some of the later stage um, assets, you know, further through the whole period, we've been really helping them think through things like, you know, what are the quite binary considerations or, or considerations that go to value upon exit? You know, if you were going to IPO, um, if you were going to make sure you extract maximum value on exit, how do you prepare this asset so that, you know, with this this big transformational change that's happening across the economy, your exit value um, makes the most of, you know, the, the sort of embedded principles of, of governance that you've already integrated into this asset? So let's go to that public market example. So we kind of look down into the into the private markets there. So engagement with a public company i mean they they are doing this in a very transparent environment and reporting on this is getting uh, increasing year on year so how are you finding these engagements what's what's a good example there yeah we we have a number of examples there everyone from those who come to us with a blank sheet of paper and and sort of saying you know, I've, I've heard about this thing called the TCFD or the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. What do I do? Um, right through to those, you know, who are at the leading edge of, of kind of activity, some of the, you know, the large multinational fast-moving consumer goods companies, for example. Um, the, the one I want to focus on today is, is probably one who is slightly in the middle of, of those two because I think it's just a really interesting case study for me of um, – some of the the siloed thinking that we sometimes get, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean this is challenging. It's it's big. It's strategic. Um, but this particular company had taken a, a particular agenda without thinking about the bigger change that was going on across the economy. So so let me break that that slightly yeah, cryptic please. description please. down. Yeah. Um, so so this company uh, is operating in in packaging production. Um, they had set. Uh, a net zero target across their business. Packaging uh, production. So these are the boxes that Amazon are using, or what are we? Um, what are we actually sort of? Uh, this kind is of aluminium cans and, and glass bottles specifically. Okay. So okay. so kind of um, 
you know, high heat load, high energy intensive industry. Um, and they'd set a net zero target ac- across that production or operational footprint, which is, which is great. Um, so they were buying coal upstream, um, popping it into furnaces, doing the blasting, doing the smelting, doing the rolling um, and, and creating a product out the other end. Right. So they thought if we green our power consumption, if we uh, reduce our reliance on coal through things like electric arc furnaces and electrify the heat load, um, we'll be a net zero company, uh, the, we'll, we'll meet the demands of our downstream customers, the, the Coca-Colas, the Heinekens, the, you know, the Diageos of the world who were all asking for lower carbon packaging. They came to us and they said, well, really, we just want you to kind of tell us that, that we've done a good job. And we said, well, yes, you've, you've done a really good job, um, but, you know, let us run some risks and opportunities because you haven't yet done that to it. Um, and, and as we were going through that process, we sort of said to them, well, look, you've, you've successfully looked at decarbonizing your operations as your operations exist today. So you've made a blanket assumption there that today's operations will continue in perpetuity. But we know there's a huge push going on as this transition plays out around circularity and how we, uh, you know, how we embed more recycled aluminium aluminium content is going to be a really critical part of actually decarbonizing this industry. So whilst you've got a net zero strategy, what we can't tell you is that actually expending the capex to make these factories net zero is the right capex versus employing a diversification strategy which would actually help you to you know integrate more recycled content to make sure that you disrupt your own business model before it's disrupted by somebody else who's playing much more in that circularity part of the market and with that discussion what we were actually able to to help them you know, unlock was really a much bigger strategic discussion about the future of their whole business strategy uh, and the extent to which virgin production of aluminium cans and, and glass bottles, no matter how lightweighted those were, was actually going to be the enduring future of, of that business. Or, of course, it was going to continue to be an element of that business, but what other strands did they need to be really fit for purpose in this low carbon sort of future? So that was just a really exciting example for me of how something like the TCFD really unlocked quite a different conversation to just a net zero discussion um, in and of itself. So would you say, and and this is something we've thought about a lot, uh, but there's, a, there's more of an impetus or a, a pushing impetus coming bottom up from corporates to move well ahead of legislation or mandated requirements because it's crucial for how their business works. It's crucial to secure funding or secure uh, investment. They can't necessarily move without having decent plans in place. Is that what you're finding? I, I <clears throat> excuse me, I, I am. And I, I guess the the part of the phrase that resonated with me there was the well ahead of regulations. I think lots of people would have an ambition to move ahead of regulations. I think the the reality is the regulations are all encompassing now. You know, if you look across 
the sum of the parts for, you know, here in the UK, for example, we have, you know, the Green Finance Roadmap, we have the TCFD, which which will ultimately sort of transpose into uh, the International Sustainability Standards Boards, the ISSB, um, all regulated under the FCA. We have the Prudential Regulator, um, who's moved on, on the banks, the insurers, the private asset managers um, around some of the stress testing kind of and disclosure obligations as well. Compliance alone, done well, is a huge lift for companies. Mm. And done well does drive a really strategic agenda to help these companies actually think about the durability, the viability, the resilience, and the opportunity for value creation across their businesses. And again, done well, you know, really does create that impetus for change. Um, so whilst we sort of say, yes, they have ambition to exceed the regulations, the, the, the fact is for most of them, just meeting the regulations mm. is now a full-time job and actually, you know, should, should be enough if you're giving it the right oversight, the right insight uh, and, the, and the right time and attention. So you did mention the cash needs to get to the, the right place and we need the, the governance and infrastructure to, to encourage that. It's something we think about a lot as well in terms of, um, well, really it's, a, it's an investment versus divestment argument for us. We want to make sure we're investing, we're engaging, that the, the companies we're talking to are, are building you know, really robust transition plans. But just in terms of your thinking as to where the capital needs to go, how do you... Um, how are you thinking about that from you know from your statement there? There is no transition unless it's a just transition. Fundamentally, we have to take the whole world on this journey. And and it, it, if you look at you know where we are in terms of both the low carbon transition, but also kind of the the broader climate change climate change agenda, um, those who are most vulnerable, both locally but also globally are likely to be left behind unless we have an outsized focus on on how to make this a just transition. So there are a number of facets to that and I guess specifically honing in on some of that emerging market context, you know, that, that is a really key clear focus of of you know this this next kind of negotiating period under um, the Paris Agreement, you know we saw loss and damage finance being committed to in in COP twenty seven, but but it's not enough uh, and it's not fast enough. Um, we need things like you know a high trust, high integrity voluntary carbon market um, to allow those sort of commercial structures to emerge to allow capital to flow um, in in really. Um, you know, in, in, in large volumes ultimately, um, which some of the other transitional vehicles may not be able to deliver. Uh, and we need structured sort of concessional finance, things like, you know, the, the commercial vehicles that the World Bank and, and um, the Asian Development Bank, et cetera, structuring around how to crowd in private market finance, reduce those barriers to entry around, you know, regulatory understanding and, um, and you know, ability to, to, to do business on the ground to enable um, that sort of the, the big sort of wall of capital that we all keep talking about to actually do business where, where it's most needed in this transition. And one of the one of those barriers is certainly that you know, these are 
sectors, sometimes regions that have higher emissions and um, you know, whether it's higher emissions per capita of GDP or whether it's um, higher emissions on in, in just in terms of the, the companies and the, the sectors they're operating in. Uh, are you... Are you seeing a, any um, any changes in in the way the market's approaching emissions? I mean, I think very early on the Paris Agreement led us down to a, a path of sort of well, you know, emissions are bad. Are you seeing are you seeing something different from your perspective? I'm I'm starting to see a much more sort of holistic balance scorecard approach emerging where companies are starting to factor in a broader range of issues into their decision making. So, you know, both carbon emissions, climate risk, social aspects of, you know, human rights, diversity and inclusion, uh, etc. And, and, you know, a number of other aspects like nature and biodiversity, etc. as well. So, um, you know, a really good example for me, I've, you know, been, been working with a um, fast-moving consumer goods company who has large agricultural supply chains, um, largely in emerging markets. Now, being agriculture, it has both, you know, high emissions, it has uh, a high sort of social impact in terms of the livelihoods of, of those agricultural producers on the ground, um, and some of the practices that they've been coached to employ mm. to get greater yield uh, in those agricultural sort of um, areas, uh, both lend themselves to higher emissions um, through things like you know nitrate-based fertilisers, um, but also you know a, a higher um, biodiversity impact through the degradation of the soil uh, over time, etc. Um, couple that with some water stress, um, and we're in something of a pickle uh, long term. So what we've been helping some of those companies start to think through is well, what does a climate resilient, nature positive and just business model look like, um, one which doesn't simply go, oh, well, I should probably diversify out of that area into 10 areas and, and come what may to, to those particular people. It's well, how maybe I help them diversify the lines of production um, so that they've got some hedging for different weather events, um, how do I help them to adapt more sustainable agricultural practices to support um, both a lower carbon footprint but also you know, more of a nature positive footprint um, and how do I as a large sort of company actually use my balance sheet to help enable the access to the finance that's required to support those people on the ground to actually make that change. Um, and ultimately then provide them with a long-term uh, livelihood, um, which is resilient to all of that change, which is you know, in large part being delivered because of you know, a lot of the emissions which were created in other parts of the world for the needs of people in mm. other parts of the world. Exactly. You know, I imagine they're going to find it hard to sell these products unless they've got something positive to say around how they're helping you know, these, these farms and agriculture in general. A absolutely. Um, you know, in increasingly, you know, we, we talked about the sort of scope three customers being, you know, large multinationals, but actually at the end of the day, you know, customers are us. Mm. Um, and increasingly, not exclusively and, and, and very much still regionalized at the moment, customers are starting to vote with their feet around the products, the brands that they want to be associated with. You know, everything from... 
you know, let's roll back five years ago, um, no one would have thought about carrying a, a cup around with them or a, a water bottle around with them at all. Um, fast forward to today and it's, you know, here in the UK, it's, you know, almost a little bit, um, you're judged a little bit if you're, if you're carrying a, you know, a, an Evian bottle these days, right? Yeah. Um, those changes in consumer preferences are starting to evolve at pace. And for some of these fast-moving consumer goods companies, particularly who, whose sort of direct end market is us, you know, they have to start to think really carefully about what they put in their goods, what they package their goods in, and how they engage with the people who are ultimately enabling them to participate in these markets um, to continue to hold the trust of these end consumers. So I thought we might talk a little bit about a disorderly transition. Uh, we've, we've done a lot of research through our investment institute on how a disorderly transition might manifest or some of the components of that that we need to think about as investors. Perhaps you could give us your interpretation or thinking around whether we might be in a disorderly transition. When I think about the transition, I think well, for 10 years, we have been talking about you know, a low carbon future, pro probably longer, arguably, since 1990 with the Kyoto Protocol, but, you know, realistically, properly in the last decade. Um, and really what we've been doing is kind of playing in the sandpit in, in, in the Kids League, and, and we need to put this transition that we've seen to date on steroids to get to this one and a half degrees outcome. For me, in the current geopolitical environment, the idea that we're going to get some kind of utopian global agreement to work together in pursuit of like really efficient outcomes um, is, is, is just so manifestly unlikely that it's, it's really difficult to see how, you know, we can have anything but a disorderly transition. You know, we are seeing huge investment um, through, you know, a number of Western economies, you know, we've got the EU Fit for 55 program, we've got the Inflation Reduction Act in the US. This is, you know, channeling billions, if not trillions of capital into these economies to decarbonize them. Um, meanwhile, we can't yet unlock, you know, emerging markets finance to make sure that this is this is also a just transition and, and taking all those emerging markets on this journey as well. So for, for me, there is no option but for this to be um, a disorderly transition and we all need to make sure that we are considering both the resilience of our businesses to to those physical risks to, to those transitional changes but also the opportunity of transposing our economy from the old world order to the new world order um, building that into our core business strategy so that we are resilient come what may I think the the probably the last thing I want to dig into a little bit is you know, we, we know these companies are building their transition plans. They're, they're going to be coming through thick and fast. Obviously, a lot of them have already been um, published and, and companies are working towards them. We, you know, we, we think there will be quite a spectrum of, you know, good, robust, practical plans that you can finance that, that, that seem, you know, plausible things to occur and then, then plans that may not fit that criteria. How do you view this this spectrum? I mean, you've seen good plans, poorer plans. I mean, you know, tell us a little bit about 
your experience here? Think what we are seeing at the moment in terms of transition plans is generation one. Um, it's companies making a start on what will ultimately need to be a multi-year journey. And at the moment, the suggestion is that companies kind of republish their transition plan every three to five years. But I haven't seen any transition plan yet where I would say, yeah, that's a set and forget for three years kind of transition plan. And the reason for that is um, a lot of companies have set out an intent. They, they, they'd like to be net zero across scope one, two, and, and sometimes scope three emissions. You know, a number of them have set out sub-targets within that, whether that's, I don't know, methane targets if you're oil and gas, or whether that's water consumption if you're in industrial production. But whatever that is, they've, they've set out the intent of what they'd like to do. But for me, the transition plan is about moving from intent into demonstration of implementation. And that means, um, you know, opening the kimono, so to speak, to a much deeper level of analysis than companies are used to providing, um, and particularly used to providing on a forward-looking basis. Um, I always sort of say that, you know, ESG and, and in particular climate change is almost, it's just the first area which is sort of sticking its head above the parapet, so to speak, in terms of um, this kind of broader corporate reform that's going on, which will require um, much greater disclosure outside of ESG in terms of forward-looking plans and resilience and viability and, and all of those good things. So this is this is just the first of many agendas which will require this kind of forward-looking disclosure. But it's uncomfortable for businesses because they're not used to having to show business plans kind of really beyond one year forward. And, and what we're really asking for is sort of three, five, even 10 years of you know, clarity over where the investments are going to be made um, across their business to, to deliver those ambitions, what capex will be needed to deliver that, how that will change the OPEX assumptions in the business model, how they've intertwined things like the just transition, so those social impacts that we talked about and the social considerations of both their workforce and their supply chains into that. And then ultimately how they're, again, you know, intertwining nature and biodiversity considerations um, into how they're positioning, how they're thinking. And, and all of that, you know, you can have a very nice plan on a page, but it's only a plan on a page, and I've said this to many boards, they say, well, we have a net zero strategy. I say, no, you have a PowerPoint slide. Um, it's not a strategy unless the board has oversight and accountability of it. It's integrated into executive remuneration. It's integrated into investment planning to capital allocation. Um, you know, that the business units have the right accountability. Um, and that ultimately, the whole business has a culture which is set around delivery of that as core business strategy, not as a CSR pillar off to the side of the business, um, which, you know, nobody will get too upset if you don't deliver. And, and for me, the transition plan is the manifestation of all of that uh, and showing and demonstrating how the stewardship of your business will deliver on these outcomes. And we aren't close to that for most companies today.
I think that's a pretty helpful definition of uh, what a good transition plan needs to look like. So I think, um, Bridget, unless there's anything else you wanted to cover, we can we can wrap it up there. And uh, it's been amazing having you on today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This podcast is a marketing communication and is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. In South Africa, 91 is an authorised financial services provider.